Now then, we'll turn to John chapter 13 on page 1240. John chapter 13. And Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we'll ask the question that the Lord asked of the disciples at the end of verse 12. After he had finished washing their feet, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I have done to you? Now this foot washing is one of these incidents in the Bible where there's more going on than meets the eye. It happens quite often. In fact, in the chapter immediately before, we have another example. When Mary um, anointed Jesus, uh, his head and his feet, um, that seems simply to be an act of love. But when we look deeper into the narrative, it's about death, it's about a funeral, it's about a resurrection. And who really would have thought that at the time? Uh, This is like that. The main lesson here uh, is the obvious one. It's a lesson in humility. And Christ makes that very plain. But there's a second lesson too. It's hidden underneath the surface. It's a lesson in holiness. And uh, this morning and tonight, with God's help, I want to look at both these lessons. A lesson in humility and a lesson in holiness. Uh, Both, of course, are connected. We would expect that to be so. If, If they are involved in the one incident, we would expect them very much to be connected So we'll look at them separately, but we'll also tie them together. This morning, a lesson in humility, and tonight, a lesson in holiness. Let's begin with humility. I mentioned before the reading that this incident takes place at a a solemn time and in a solemn place, too. It takes place uh, at a solemn time on the night in which the Lord was betrayed. It is the last night of his life on this earth before the cross. It's a solemn place too. It is the upper room where Christ at last, and for the last time, is alone with his disciples. And he's with them at the table for the last time. The Passover, the last Passover, that he will observe with them. With desire, I have desired to sit at this table or to partake of this Passover with you. With desire. The expression means with earnest desire. He longed for it. We sometimes call it, and it's generally called, the Last Supper. Of course, it is really the first Lord's Supper. It is the last Passover. But our Lord is gathered with the disciples around a table, a solemn night, a solemn time. And it occurs when supper is ready, in verse 2. 
Now, I have to draw attention to this because I think it's important that we understand this properly. It says, supper being ended. Now, the word used there uh, is a word that really means um, uh, finished for eating or prepared. Uh, It's not meant to convey that they have finished eating. The context makes very plain that they had not. What it means is that the that the supper was ready, ready for eating. Um, so it's very important to understand it like that. They had not actually begun to eat. I'll say why it was important later on. So supper is finished in the sense of being ready to eat. And everything is ready to begin the Passover, except that one duty has been missed out, and that's the duty of washing their defeat. Now, I suppose it's reasonable enough to ask why the duty was missed out. Why had nobody done it? Uh, normally, it's the duty of the host to wash the feet of the guests. And if the household is wealthy, then uh, you would get your slave to do it. And really, it came to be associated with a, a task of Well, a menial task, one performed by a servant. And, of course, there's no host here, strictly speaking. The upper room was mysteriously provided for them, and they are sitting together. So the duty just falls to one of them to do it, but nobody, obviously, is doing it. Now, it would be a mistake to think that that's just a matter of oversight, that they've just um, forgotten about it. The fact of the matter is that they're very much aware that it hasn't been done. They all know that it should be done, but nobody is volunteering to do it, and there's no agreement amongst them as to who should really do it. In other words, what I'm trying to convey to you here is not that the Lord suddenly rises and just does this, but he rises in the context of a discussion about who should really be doing this kind of thing. Now, I have a particular reason for saying that. Luke tells us that at the Lord's table, now he doesn't specify why, and that's because Luke, of all the gospel writers, is the least chronological. He orders this material topically all the time. So he doesn't tell us when. He simply tells us that at the Lord's table a dispute arose as to which amongst them should be the greatest. Seems to us a very strange dispute to have around the Lord's table. A dispute like that seems very petty in the first place, and it certainly seems out of place. And I suppose it's only fair to say that it is petty, really, and it is out of place. But still we have to do justice to these disciples. Uh, We have to put their dispute in context. There was a a reason for arguing about these things. After all, you have to remember that on some occasions, the Lord gave an unexpected honor to some of the disciples more than others. Peter, famously, he called a stone and told him that in some sense the keys of the kingdom of heaven were to be given to him. 
You'll remember that on another two occasions, the Lord took Peter, James, and John aside, separated them from the other eight disciples, and gave them a particular honor. They alone saw Jairus' daughter rise from the dead. They alone saw Christ being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. And you'll remember that shortly after the Transfiguration, walking away from Mount Hermon, the disciples are debating this question of prominence and greatness in the kingdom. There are ways in which we discuss it ourselves. I mean, sometimes we ask, well, are there degrees of glory in the kingdom of heaven? Will some people be more exalted than others in the kingdom of heaven? Will some people be nearer the Lord in heaven? Now, when we have discussions like that, and when we ask questions like that, this is the kind of discussion that we are having, essentially, is it not? Is it not the same idea? So the Lord has given honor to some. There were times, too, amongst the disciples when some of them sought honor above others. James and John asked Jesus if they could have a place of particular honor in his kingdom. Grant that one of us may sit on your right hand and the other on your left in the kingdom. Now, uh, Matthew tells us that their mother was with them. And uh, I suppose it's tempting to say that she was the instigator of the request. Uh, but another gospel writer makes plain that the request also came from themselves. So in what way their mother was mixed up in it, we can leave that to another time. The point for us right now is that James and John themselves were interested in that. One on your right and another on the left. Now, to be fair... There's a certain way in which we could make that kind of request, and it would be a spiritual one too. I mean, is it not right for us to ask and to want that we would be near the Lord, that we would be in close proximity with him, in close fellowship with him, everlastingly? If that's what they meant, and if that's all that they had meant, it would be a good thing. But it's very plain from the way Jesus answers them that there was more in it than that. There was too much of self mixed in with it. The disciples noticed that too. were told that after they had asked this, they were greatly displeased with James and John. I suppose you might be too. If, if two of yourselves had made such a request, perhaps you would have been angry about it too. You'd be angry with these two. Well, they were as well. And sometimes a request that appears spiritual can have a lot of self in it. In fact, a lot of things that we do which appear spiritual uh, can have quite a lot of the flesh in them. And the Lord needs to purge that out. I think there's a way in which the whole of our Christian lives are like that. A lot of our sanctification consists in God getting rid of of so much of the pride and the self that is mixed in with a lot of the good that we do. We can sometimes perhaps look back on things we said and did and realize, well, there was quite a bit of the flesh in that. And maybe, and it's a good sign in you, if, if things that you do now are done more for the honor and glory of God than perhaps they were before. 
So the dispute at this table, I think, is twofold. First of all, where should they sit? And second, who should wash the feet? Where should they sit? Yes. Jesus himself tells us that it's an honor to be called up by the host to sit higher. You remember, he says, whenever you're asked uh, to partake of a meal, he says, take, take the lowly place. And if the host wishes, he'll call you up higher. Don't take a high place in case the host removes you from it to a lower place. But there's an argument here as to who should sit closest to the Lord. Strangely, and unexpectedly as it turns out, Judas is on one side and John on the other. Peter seems to be opposite the Lord, which is pretty much as far away as you could have got. Nobody would expect that Judas would be on one side and John on the other, but that's how it fell out. But there was a dispute about it. And who should wash the feet? Yes, who should do that? It's perhaps worth considering that it's not just a matter of not thinking you should do it yourself, but maybe thinking that somebody else should do it. Sometimes honor is like that. Sometimes it's a matter not necessarily of wanting it yourself, but somebody else not having it. It's quite possible that Thomas would say, well, uh, I don't know who's going to be at the Lord's right hand and left, but I don't want it to be James and John, because I remember when they specifically asked, and we didn't like that. See? Maybe sometimes you're not so much concerned that you have the place, but that somebody else doesn't have it. Maybe you've got an idea as who it is that should be appointed. Perhaps you could say, well, it'd be good if James washed everybody's feet, because he obviously needs to be brought down a peg or two. So it's who should sit where and who should wash the feet. So the meal might be ready, but their hearts are not ready. They're not ready to take it. We talk about preparing for the Lord's Supper. Some people wonder why you should prepare for the Lord's Supper. This is why you need to prepare for the Lord's Supper. The meal can be ready and the bread is ready and the wine is ready, but are you ready? As the debate goes on, Christ decides to teach them this lesson one more time. There's a sense in which he keeps teaching it from heaven, and he keeps teaching it to ourselves too, but one more time, one last time in the flesh, he will teach them a lesson on humility, and he will teach it in action as well as in words. First of all, in action, an action sermon. In Presbyterian churches, that's the term used to describe the sermon at the Lord's Supper, an action sermon. But at this Lord's table, the first action sermon was actually done when he enacted humility before them. And it's recorded for us step by step. You'll notice a very long preamble full of subordinate clauses in verses 1 to 3. When Jesus knew that his hour had come, having loved his own, supper being ended, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. 
The reason for these clauses we'll see later. But then in verse 4, we come to the action. He rose from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel. He belted himself with it. He girt himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash their feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girt. This step-by-step account of a very simple process is conveying something. It's meant to convey something. There's, first of all, undoubtedly, a sense of astonishment. And uh, you feel that sense of astonishment on the part of the one who's recording it, John himself. It's as though the impression he made uh, stayed so much on his mind and on his heart. He saw it and he couldn't believe it as he got up and did all this. So step by step, he's amazed by it. Step by step, he records it. And of course, it's astonishing because it is astonishing. It's an astonishment. It's an astonishing thing that the Lord Jesus Christ should divest himself of his honor like this and robe himself as a servant. I've done this, he says, as your master. But it's no ordinary master. And it's no ordinary act of service either, is it? I mean, who is the master here? Not just any master. This is the Lord of glory. And he's conscious of that. It's not as though he's somehow forgotten who he was or what he should be doing. In fact, John in the preamble tells us that he's very conscious of who he is. He doesn't do this forgetful of who he is, but very much aware of who he is. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. So he gets up knowing that he had come from God. Not just in the sense that everything and everyone comes from God, but from the bosom of God. He is who he is as the Son of God, the only begotten in the bosom of the Father. He had come from there, knowing too that he was going to God. Not in the sense in which we all go to God to give our accounts, but that he's going to return to God to resume the glory which he had with him before the world was. He has come from glory and is ascending to glory with all things being given into his hands, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, he would ascend not simply glorious, but with all power and authority being given into his hands from the Father. Knowing all that, he gets up, divests himself of his garments, and clothes himself as a servant. In other words, it's the divine person that is humbling himself here. It is God that is stooping down low. And that's what John wants us to understand. Not just to see Jesus humbling himself, but God coming down low. 
Psalm 139, we sang it. Praise God, though he be high, yet he stoops down to look upon things in heaven and things upon the earth, not just to look upon them, but to serve them and to save them. This is the Lord of glory humbling himself. And it's no ordinary service that he does either. He has come to serve, to wash their dirty feet. Uh, Not a pleasant task, really. Not a pleasant task when you think about it, is it? You've never done it. I've never done it either. But hot, sweaty, dusty feet. And it's not just their dirty feet that he's washing. We'll see this more tonight. It's their dirty hearts. There are people in front of him arguing about what they should never have been arguing about, really. They're not in the right frame of mind. They're not in the right frame of heart. But never mind. He'll stoop and he'll cleanse. And he must stoop to cleanse. Peter says, you shall have, you shall never wash my feet. The Lord says, if I don't, you have no part with me. That has a hidden meaning that we'll see tonight. But I don't think we should leave this out of it. That the Lord is essentially saying that if you don't like me stooping, how can I save you? I'm stooping low enough to wash your feet because I'm stooping to wash your hearts. Have you any idea of what stooping I must do to wash your hearts? Do you think this is the depth of my humiliation? This only indicates where I'm going. I am going so low that you can hardly believe it. I am going to go low enough to be able to cleanse your souls as well as your feet. And that will require divesting myself, as I have, of my glorious robes and putting on, well, a curse, becoming a curse, becoming less than a servant. So from being Lord of glory, he becomes a servant of servants. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the, the steps of his humiliation here are seven in number. There are seven things detailed. Rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Seven steps. It's a complete humiliation. It's a perfect humiliation. Peter, of course, as I mentioned, famously protests. And it leads to this profound conversation that we'll see tonight. But after he's finished, the Lord says, Do you know what I've done to you? Now, of course, they don't. They don't really. Not in its fullness, anyway. Uh, The lesson in holiness, uh, foot washing, that we'll look at tonight, well, they haven't a clue about that. I mean, that's, you could say, gone over their heads like that. It's only later that they'll come to understand that discussion. As is so often the case with God's words to us and God's meanings. We don't take it in at the time. But even the lesson on humility, they're not fully appreciating there and then either. So he explains it. If I do this to you as your master, 
you must do it too. And he expands on it. He says that in the Gentile world, authority is harsh most of the time. Its distinctive characteristic is command. And anything the master does for the servant is to be appreciated as the work of a benefactor. It's simply an authority of structure. You command, you obey. In my kingdom, he says, it is not so. The authority is not marked out by harshness, but by gentleness. And what's distinctive about it is not so much command, but service. The one in authority serves gladly and cheerfully. So never forget us, my apostles, and as Christian leaders and Christian people, never forget what I do now to you. I stoop to cleanse you, and I stoop to serve you. Now, it would make all the difference in the world to ourselves and to all the churches of Christ if we could realize this and practice it. But it must be true and not false. You can put on a humility. You can act it ritualistically. There are some very small and obscure branches of the Christian church that have kept the foot washing as a ritual. They do that on the basis that Jesus said, if I have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. And they've taken that pretty much as a kind of sacrament. So they have foot washing. Certainly the Glassites or the Sandemanians, as they used to be called in Scotland, used to practice that. I don't know if any other group in Scotland does right now, to be honest, but certainly used to be done. Famously, the Pope washes a certain number of people's feet on a particular day of the ecclesiastical calendar. Um, But this is not that, is it? This is not that. This is something deeper than that. This is not symbolic. This is real. This is a real act of humility. A humility that should characterize you and me. And it's got to be genuine. It's got to be somehow in our hearts and in our lives and in our hands and in our feet serving one another. What's the secret behind this humility? Well, I could say a lot about humility. We could think about it separately as a distinct subject, how important it is to have a proper view of ourselves, a low view of ourselves, how we could think of what Paul said, to think of one another more highly than we think of ourselves. There's a lot in that. To remember what and who we are before God, there's a lot in that. But for now, let's just stick to the passage itself. The passage tells us something important about humility. It tells us what its root is and what its fruit is. It's got a hidden root and a visible fruit. Its hidden root is love. Love. And where you find real love, you will find real humility. And it's in that order. Humility doesn't beget love. But love does beget humility. 
And where love declines, humility declines. And of course, if humility is declining, pride is flourishing. Love, real love, produces humility. That's why in this long preamble in John, do you notice that we're led into the heart of Christ? Verse 1, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. What does that mean? And why is it there? What does it mean, he loved them to the end? It just means that, well, it doesn't mean he loved them absolutely. He certainly does love them absolutely. It means, rather, that he loved them to the very end of his ministry. In other words, he never gave up on them. He kept faith with them, and he did not let them go. And that's a, a wonderful thing. Paul tells us that love is not easily provoked. It's just as well. Because he was often provoked. The disciples um, very often gave the Lord cause to say, well, I'm finished with you and I'm choosing others. But he doesn't do that. He sticks with them all the time just as he sticks with you. If you've got any sense yourself as a Christian of any amount of years of experience, you'll have cause to wonder why Christ sticks with you too. It's a lovely thing that he sticks with us and he sticks with us to the end. It's a great biblical doctrine, is it not? The perseverance of the saints. It's the final P in the Calvinistic tulip, the perseverance of the saints. But, of course, it's really the perseverance of the Holy Spirit, is it not? It's really the perseverance of Christ. The, the perseverance of the saints, sometimes as we think about it, focuses on ourselves persevering, which, of course, we do. But the focus really is on Christ persevering with us. He loved them to the end. Even when they're arguing about greatness at the table, he still loves them. He still loves them. I think it's worth noticing, too, that he stoops to wash Judas's feet. It's very, very plain that the Lord's Supper has not taken place at this point. Verse, seven, he, verse 11, he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. He's talking to them there. Judas is there. We know that Judas left later on. So he washes Judas' feet. He washes his feet. When God asks you to feed your enemy when he's hungry, and when God asks you to give your enemy a drink when he's thirsty, and when God asks you to wash the feet of your enemies, 
He's only asking you to do what he's done himself. That's all. That night, Jesus knew that Judas was effectively putting himself into the pains of hell. Is that not right? He knew that that evening, Judas was putting himself, Christ the Lord, to the very pangs of hell upon Golgotha. Uh, But he still washed his feet. Let that be a lesson in humility and indeed in love. I'm not saying that Jesus loved Judas as one of his own. No, he did not. But simply as a man obeying the law, he had to love his neighbor as himself. And his neighbor included his enemy. And he showed us there what we are to do. So he gave us an example there that we should do likewise. The root of humility is love. That's the hidden root. Its visible fruit is service. The service of the saints. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, he remembers the household of Stephanus and he wants them to remember the household of Stephanus who have addicted themselves to the service of the saints. Now what a wonderful expression that is. They have addicted themselves, that's literally what the Greek is saying, to the service of the saints. The apostle thought that was precious. We should think it precious too. The cheerful service of God's people is a sign of humility of heart and it's a sign of loving the Lord. Now, I suppose if we were going to say, what is the real sign of loving God? Is there, some, is there some kind of sign that really proves the love of God? Well, you may point to something like the martyr's stake. And you would say, well, there's somebody who ascends that stake, and somebody who is willing to be burnt to a cinder for the Lord. That is somebody who has love in his heart. But what the Lord is saying here is that Someone who serves tea or makes a meal or entertains the poor amongst the Lord's people cheerfully and willingly has the love of God in their heart. That's what he's saying. True humility arises from love and shows itself in being willing to wash the feet. Acts like that. Yes, acts like that. So the true love for God is not just seen on the martyr scaffold, if you like. It's seen humbly serving the people of God, providing it's done cheerfully and willingly. There's a thousand tasks that we might do, perhaps in the spirit of Martha, grumbling and complaining. But when it is given and done, In the name of the Lord, for the Lord's sake, simply because I am glad to do it for you and you are glad to do it for me, simply because we are Christians, not perfect Christians, none of them were. There was something annoying about them. But when we serve like that, we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Love leads to humility, which leads to service. 
No, let's see if we can find that. Let's see if we can replicate that. So that people will say, behold how they love one another. Because they see that love manifested. That's why the Lord says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master. I've done it, you do it. Nor is he who has sent you greater than he who sent him, me. So if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Oh, that the Lord would give us this love, that we would strive to have it, and the humility and the service that comes from it. Now, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, and I close with this, um, there's more than that in the narrative. There's another lesson, a related one, a deeper one, and we'll see what it is, God willing, tonight. Uh, let us pray. Our gracious God, we bless you for the privilege of being able to serve in your household. And we pray that we would gladly discharge any task that is to be done. For it is indeed a privilege to wash the feet of anyone who belongs to Christ. Help us then to be willing to do such things. And to remember that it is only following in the footsteps of the one who loved ourselves and who loves us to the end. What a wonderful condescension that the Lord of glory should do that for us. How much then we should do it for others. <clears throat> Bless our deliberations upon your word, we pray, in his name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> Let's close by singing in Psalm 131 on page 422. And we sing to the tune Warwick. Psalm 131, my heart not haughty is, O Lord, my eyes not lofty be, nor do I deal in matters great or things too high for me. I surely have myself behaved with quiet spirit and mild, as child of mother wind, my soul is like a wind child. Upon the Lord let all the hope of Israel rely even from the time that present is unto eternity. The whole psalm, let's stand to sing.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.